0: Hey nerds, I know, I know, it's been a while. It's been a very slow month here at what SCOTUS wrote us. This month has been really busy for me. I was sick at the beginning of the month with a bad cold. And then I did a guest lecture the second week into the month. And then last week I went on a much, much needed vacation. But I'm back. I know there are two new argued opinions that have been issued that I haven't read yet. One is Axon Enterprises v. Federal Trade Commission, which I'll be reading today. And the next one is New York v. New Jersey, which I'll be reading next episode. We also have a couple of opinions pertaining to orders, and those are Donziger v. United States and Brown v. Louisiana, which I will be reading in the upcoming weeks if I have time. But for right now, without any further ado, no introduction or anything. We'll get right to it. Today's case is Axon Enterprise, Inc., the Federal Trade Commission. Enjoy. Decided April 14, 2023. Justice Kagan delivered the opinion of a unanimous court. In each of these two cases, the respondent in an administrative enforcement action challenges the constitutional authority of the agency to proceed. Both respondents claim that the agency's administrative law judges, ALJs, are insufficiently accountable to the president in violation of separation of powers principles. And one respondent attacks as well the combination of prosecutorial and adjudicatory functions in a single agency. The challenges are fundamental, even existential. They maintain, in essence, that the agencies, as currently structured, are unconstitutional in much of their work. Our task today is not to resolve those challenges— Rather, it is to decide where they may be heard. The enforcement actions at issue were initiated in the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, and the Federal Trade Commission, FTC. Most objection to those commissions' proceedings follow a well-trod path. As prescribed by statute, a party makes its claims first within the commission itself, and then, if needed, in a federal court of appeals. The parties here, however, sidestepped that review scheme. Seeking to stop the administrative proceedings, they instead brought their claims in federal district court. The question presented is whether the district courts have jurisdiction to hear those suits and to resolve the party's constitutional challenges to the Commission structure? The answer is yes. The ordinary statutory review scheme does not preclude a district court from entertaining these extraordinary claims. Part one. Congress established the SEC to protect investors in securities markets and created the FTC to promote fair competition. The commissions enforce, respectively, the Securities Exchange Act and the FTC Act, among other laws. Those acts authorize the commissions to address statutory violations, either by bringing civil suits in federal district court or by instituting their own administrative proceedings. When a commission elects the latter option, as in these two cases— It typically delegates the initial adjudication to an ALJ. To foster independence, each commission's ALJs are removable only for good cause, as determined by the Merit Systems Protection Board, MSPB, a separate agency whose members are themselves removable by the president only for cause, such as neglect of duty or malfeasance. An ALJ assigned to hear an SEC or FTC enforcement action has authority, much like a regular trial judge, to resolve motions, hold a hearing, and then issue a decision. A losing party may appeal the ALJ's ruling to the Commission. Alternatively, the Commission may undertake review on its own initiative. The Exchange Act and FTC Act both provide for review of a final commission decision in a court of appeals rather than a district court. Under the Exchange Act, a person aggrieved by an SEC final order may obtain review of the order by filing a petition in a court of appeals. That petition gives the appellate court jurisdiction to affirm or modify and enforce or to set aside the order in whole or in part. The FTC Act similarly provides that the party subject to an FTC order may obtain a review of such order in a Court of Appeals and grants the Court jurisdiction to affirm, modify, or set aside the order. The cases before us, though, did not take the above-described course. In each, the respondent, in an administrative enforcement action, sued in district court prior to an ALJ decision, seeking to enjoin the Commission's proceeding. Each suit charged that some fundamental aspect of the Commission's structure violates the Constitution— that the violation made the entire proceeding unlawful, and that being subjected to such an illegitimate proceeding causes legal injury, independent of any rulings the ALJ might make. Finally, each suit premised jurisdiction on district court's ordinary federal question authority, their power under 28 U.S.C. Section 1331, to resolve civil actions arising under the Constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States. We describe the two cases in turn, but what we have just said they have in common is really all that is necessary to know. The first case arises from an SEC enforcement action brought against Michelle Cochran, a certified public accountant. In an earlier round of that proceeding, an ALJ found that Cochrane had failed to comply with auditing standards in violation of the Exchange Act. But soon after that decision issued, this court held that the SEC's ALJs had been improperly appointed. In compliance with that ruling, the SEC ordered a fresh hearing conducted by a now validly appointed ALJ. That was the last straw for Cochrane. Before the new ALJ hearing began, she sued the commission in federal district court, asserting jurisdiction under section 1331. Cochrane's complaint focused on the two layers of tenure protection all ALJs hold. By statute, those officials may be removed only for good cause as determined by the MSPB, whose members themselves can only be removed by the president for good cause. That arrangement, Cochrane asserted, so greatly insulates ALJs from presidential supervision as to violate the separation of powers. More specifically, Article II's vesting of executive power in the president. And because that was true, Cochran continued, ALJs could not constitutionally exercise power. They could neither hold any hearings nor make any decisions. Cochran thus sought declaratory and injunctive relief, freeing her of the obligation to submit to an unconstitutional proceeding. The second case arises from an FTC enforcement action against Axon Enterprise, a company that makes and sells policing equipment. In its complaint, the FTC alleged that Axon's purchase of its closest competitor violated the FTC Act's ban on unfair methods of competition. To stop the FTC from pursuing that charge, Axon did just what Cochrane had—brought suit against the commission in district court, premised on federal question jurisdiction. Like Cochrane, Axon asserted that the commission's ALJs could not constitutionally exercise governmental authority because of their dual-layer protection from removal. In addition, Axon claimed that the combination of prosecutorial and adjudicative functions in the commission renders all of its enforcement actions unconstitutional. Again, similarly to Cochran, Axon asked the court to enjoin the FTC from subjecting it to the commission's unfair and unconstitutional internal forum. Cochrane's and Axon's suits met an identical fate in district court—dismissal for lack of jurisdiction. The district court in Cochrane's case held that the review scheme specified in the Exchange Act, administrative review followed by judicial review in a federal court of appeals, implicitly divests district courts of jurisdiction over challenges to SEC proceedings, including Cochrane's constitutional ones. Likewise, the district court in Axon's case found that the FTC Act's Comparable Review Scheme displaces Section 1331 jurisdiction for claims concerning the FTC's adjudications. So, Axon had to raise its structural constitutional claims during the administrative process and then review them if and when seeking review in the Court of Appeals. On appeal from those decisions, the United States Courts of Appeals for the Fifth and Ninth Circuits split. The Ninth Circuit, considering Axon's case, reached the same conclusion as the district courts. Reviewing this court's precedence, the Ninth Circuit acknowledged that a statutory review scheme precluding district court jurisdiction, like the FTC Acts, might not extend to every type of claim. But the court decided that Axon's constitutional challenges fell within the FTC Act scheme, mainly because the scheme guaranteed them meaningful judicial review. The en Banque Fifth Circuit disagreed as to the equivalent SEC question. The court maintained that Cochran's removal power claim is not the type of claim Congress intended to funnel through the Exchange Act's statutory review scheme. Drawing on considerations identified in this Court's opinions, the Fifth Circuit reasoned that Cochrane's claim would not receive meaningful judicial review in a Court of Appeals, that the claim was wholly collateral to the Exchange Act's statutory review scheme, and that the claim fell outside the SEC's expertise. We granted certiorari in both cases to resolve the division. We now conclude that the review schemes set out in the Exchange Act and the FTC Act do not displace district court jurisdiction over Axon's and Cochran's far-reaching constitutional claims. Part 2. Section A A special statutory review scheme this court has recognized may preclude district courts from exercising jurisdiction over challenges to federal agency action. District courts may ordinarily hear those challenges by way of 28 USC section 1331's grant of jurisdiction for claims arising under federal law. Congress, though, may substitute for that district court authority an alternative scheme of review. Congress, of course, may do so explicitly, providing in so many words that district court jurisdiction will yield. But Congress also may do so implicitly, by specifying a different method to resolve claims about agency action. The method Congress typically chooses is the one used in both the Exchange Act and the FTC Act, review in a court of appeals following the agency's own review process. We have several times held that the creation of such a review scheme for agency action divest district courts of their ordinary jurisdiction over the covered cases. The agency effectively fills in for the district court, with the Court of Appeals providing judicial review. But a statutory review scheme of that kind does not necessarily extend to every claim concerning agency action. Our decision in Thunder Basin made that point clear. After finding that Congress's creation of a comprehensive review process, like the ones here, Ousted District Courts of Jurisdiction, the court asked another question, whether the particular claims brought here were of the type Congress intended to be reviewed within this statutory structure. The court identified three considerations designed to aid in that inquiry, commonly known now as the Thunder Basin Factors. First, Could precluding district court jurisdiction foreclose all meaningful judicial review of the claim? Next, is the claim wholly collateral to the statute's review provisions? And last, is the claim outside the agency's expertise? When the answer to all three questions is yes, we presume that Congress does not intend to limit jurisdiction but the same conclusion might follow if the factors point in different directions. The ultimate question is how best to understand what Congress has done, whether the statutory review scheme, though exclusive where it applies, reaches the claim in question. The first Thunder Basin factor recognizes that Congress rarely allows claims about agency action to escape effective judicial review. The second and third reflect in related ways the point of special review provisions to give the agency a heightened role in the matters it customarily handles and can apply distinctive knowledge to. This court has twice held specific claims to fit within a statutory review scheme based on the Thunder Basin factors. In Thunder Basin itself, a coal company subject to the Mine Act filed suit in district court instead of asserting its claims as a statutory scheme prescribed before a Mine Safety Commission and then, if needed, a court of appeals. The crux of the dispute concerned the company's refusal to provide employee-designated union officials with access to the workplace as the Mine Act apparently required. The company claimed a right to exclude the officials under another statute. It also objected on due process grounds to the agencies imposing a fine before holding a hearing. We held the district court to lack jurisdiction over those claims and thus directed the company back to the statutory review scheme. The commission, we emphasized, had extensive experience in addressing the statutory issues raised and could resolve them in ways that brought to bear its expertise over the mining industry. All that was less so, we acknowledged, of the company's constitutional challenge, but that claim could be meaningfully addressed in the Court of Appeals we applied similar reasoning in Elgin. The statutory review scheme there directed federal employees challenging discharge decisions to seek review in the MSPB and then, if needed, in the Federal Circuit, a specific court of appeals. But Elgin filed suit in district court when he was fired by the government for failing to register for the draft we held that the court lacked jurisdiction even though Elgin mainly claimed that the draft law in excluding women violated the Equal Protection Clause. Although the MSPB might not be able to hold the draft law unconstitutional, we stated, the Court of Appeals could, and that was sufficient to ensure meaningful review of Elgin's claim. Still more... Elgin's claim was neither collateral to the MSPB's ordinary proceedings nor unrelated to its expertise. We reasoned that a challenge to a discharge is precisely the type of personnel action regularly adjudicated by the MSPB, and we observed that such an action could involve threshold and other questions unique to the employment context that falls squarely within the MSPB's expertise. But in Free Enterprise Fund, this court went the opposite way, holding that certain claims landed outside a statutory review scheme. The scheme was the Exchange Act's, the same as in Cochrane's case, and the main claim in Free Enterprise Fund bears more than a passing resemblance to one Axon and Cochrane rays. It, too, alleged that officials with two layers of tenure protection were unconstitutionally insulated from presidential control. The officials challenged, though, were different. They were members of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, an agency regulating the accounting industry under the SEC's oversight. When the board opened an investigation of an accounting firm's auditing practices, the firm took its Article II claim to district court. This time, we held that the court had jurisdiction of the action based on the Thunder Basin factors. We found that the Exchange Act provided no meaningful avenue of relief for the firm, given the separation between the board and the commission. Not every board action, we explained, culminates in commission action, which alone the statute makes reviewable in a court of appeals. And even supposing the SEC took up a matter arising from the board's investigation— the firm's constitutional challenge would be collateral to the subject of that proceeding. The firm, we observed, objects to the board's existence, not to any of its auditing standards. Finally, we held the firm's claim was outside the commission's competence and expertise. It raised only a standard issue of administrative and constitutional law relating not at all to considerations of agency policy. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where we left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.